Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. Trauma is a breach in the protective barrier against stimulation, leading to overwhelming feelings of helplessness. And then Peter Levine added, we've been, when trauma's happened, it's when we've been stretched beyond our capacity to rebound. And I just found that really helpful. You are listening to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mojica. I'm a holistic therapist, and my goal is to teach people how to find safety in themselves. I use nutrition, herbalism, self-inquiry, and somatic therapy to heal the body and mind of trauma. I have learned that each and every one of us has the ability to heal, to love, and to access all of the answers we're looking for. To do this, we first need to learn how to listen to our bodies and understand our minds. Let us begin. Today I am joined by my wonderful colleagues who I share two monthly supervision groups with. In these groups, we create safe space so that we can share cases, theories, and personal discoveries with one another, with the intention to further the development of ourselves as therapists and human beings. Last month, we spoke about boundary violations, and I was inspired by our dialogue to host another group session about them. But this time, I wanted to include you, my listener. Welcome to our roundtable discussion on boundaries what they are, how our bodies hold them, and how to start listening to yours on a somatic level. Allow me to introduce each of my colleagues one by one. Linda Duquesse. Hi, nice to be here. I am a longtime psychotherapist in private practice. My training prior to uh, studying somatic experiencing was in psychodynamic psychotherapy and family systems work. Beautiful. Alexis Katz. Hi, thanks for having me, Luis. Um, my name's Alexis Katz. I'm a clinical social worker in private practice. Um, and I have a background in uh, lots of cognitive behavioral therapies and mindfulness, but more and more have been integrating somatic awareness and embodiment into my practice. In my small community, um, I, I see all kinds of patients, but um, more and more finding everybody, even those without significant trauma benefit from a lot of somatically focused therapy. Beautiful. Daniel Shedlowski. 
Hey everyone. Hey Luis. Um, I'm Daniel Shedlowski. I go by Danny. I'm a private uh, psychotherapist, um, licensed clinical social worker. I'm in my advanced year of the somatic experiencing training uh, with a primary interest in psychophysiological disorders um, and working with folks with chronic health issues. Beautiful. And last but certainly not least, Laurie Robbins. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this uh, lovely roundtable discussion this morning. Um, so uh, like everyone else, I am also in the somatic experiencing uh, advanced year uh, of training. And prior to, prior to integrating uh, somatic psychotherapy, I was trained and, um, and still utilize uh, a very significant amount of eye movement desensitization and reprocessing psychotherapy with most of my clients who are who tend to be complex trauma presentations, um, attachment trauma, and also single incident trauma cases. My practice is in Summit, New Jersey. And, um, and again, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you. Thank you all for coming. So I wanna start with a little two minute somatic meditation, just for everyone listening because it's hard to understand boundaries if you don't know how to feel for them. So let's start by just feeling our boundaries, which really means taking your breath into your body and just feeling the most, we'll call it the outward structure, which is the skin, the hairs on the skin. Just feel where they are, what they feel like. Under your clothing, against a chair, the air, if it's cold or warm, the light shining on your skin if it's cold or warm. You might even want to really gently touch your arm or your hand with your other hand. Just feel your outward boundaries, your body. And take a breath into that. Just feel that. And then notice anywhere in the body that, that holds pressure or constriction. This is our most simplest way to find where we're bracing. We don't have to know why, but just feel where you're bracing. And to stick with the theme about boundaries, I find when my clients come in and there's a constriction, there's a bracing, some part unconsciously or some physiological memory is holding something, possibly a boundary violation. And we're learning how to feel those and express those so we're not carrying them around with us. So one simple expression we can all do <clears throat> before we go into the discussion, just to put your hands in front of your chest, like you're about to push something away from you, but have the hands against the chest. And just feel what it's like when the hands are touching your chest, even give it a little pressure. Notice, does that feel comforting? Does it feel overwhelming? Does it feel a little, you know, too much in your space? And you're really slowly just pushing the hands out and noticing how your body feels, what parts of the body might expand or loosen, what parts might contract more, what parts might feel numb. And play with where your hands go, you know, almost like if you're swimming in the air, play with making a little circle around yourself with your hands. Just feel the circumference of your boundary with your hands and arms. Where does it feel the best? Where does it feel uncomfortable? Just a really simple way to start today's episode. Just notice how that felt for you. You don't have to question it too much or learn too much. We're just noticing. And I think what I want to do is I want to invite Alexis to give us this quote she shared earlier um, about trauma. Who's the quote by Alexis? It's, um, it's Peter Levine. So it's a quote from... Um, uh, just I paused a, a presentation he was making on an online uh, conference on trauma this summer and jotted it down. Um, and I, I, as I mentioned to you guys, I, I think it's really helpful in kind of capturing the, the concept of boundaries as we want to talk about them today, sort of maybe a little beyond our, our typical way of thinking about them. So he said, trauma is a breach in the protective barrier against stimulation. 
let me back up a minute. Uh, Peter Levine was actually quoting Freud. So it's possible some words may have gotten a little jumbled up, both in my jotting down what Peter said and then what Peter was remembering Freud said, but I'll start over. Trauma is a breach in the protective barrier against stimulation leading to overwhelming feelings of helplessness. And then Peter Levine added, we've been, when trauma has happened, it's when we've been stretched beyond our capacity to rebound. And I just found that really helpful. I love that. I love the, the breach in the protective system. That's, that's so perfect for what we're talking about today with boundary violation. And like Alexa said, it's different than we think of boundaries. I'm not necessarily thinking about this conversation as how to create boundaries with other people that might arise naturally, but it's more about how to sense into your own bodily needs around boundaries, what it feels like to have a boundary permeation and all the ways they happen. Yeah, please. Like and if that. I can just add to that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, it, even incorporating the exercise you just did with us, right? That it's what strikes me as you did is so brief, right? But whenever I do somatic work, still, I'm so struck by, it's like, you think you know, until you actually feel into your body and you realize that you didn't know, right? You think it should feel fine to have your hands pressed against your body, mm -hmm. your backs, your hands pressed against your chest with your hands facing out. But when you take a moment to just solely focus on that, you realize it actually doesn't feel good. And, and then even more so, you don't realize it until you move your hands away that that feels better. And that I have this protective barrier that Peter said Freud is talking about, right? And that there's a, a habit of not recognizing that and not mm. paying attention to it. And that's the part I'm going to highlight verbally before I go to Linda, a habit of not, how do you say that? A habit of not protecting that, listening to I that? I think just even a habit of not noticing it. I don't remember exactly yeah, what I said, but yeah. a habit of not even being aware that it's there, right? right? That like, it feels better to have my hands a foot away from my chest than it, than it does to have them against my chest. That's right. I want to see, what, what, what are you thinking about, Linda? Hold on, let me unmute you. Go ahead. I wanted to expand our definition a little bit because even though we are talking about how we sense boundary violations or boundary disruptions in the body. The initial boundary break does not have to be a physical break. It doesn't have to be a physical trauma that we can have our boundaries violated emotionally as well. Um, what's really unique about somatic experiencing's approach to an emotional boundary violation is the idea that even an emotional boundary violation can disrupt our nervous system. And so we can have a physical response to an emotional boundary violation. So there does not have to have been a physical assault or something that we would um, kind of in the most common sense think of as trauma to have a traumatic effect in terms of how we sense it and experience it in our bodies. I'm really glad you said that because um, I'm thinking back to my last episode or no second last episode nine with Dave Berger about chronic pain. And he said that in one part about how the mind takes on emotional trauma the same way it takes on physical trauma. So the pain receptors are the same. That, that's amazing. And even now to expand on what you said, I was also thinking earlier of talking about how when there's so much unprocessed trauma in the system and we have this hypervigilant nervous system now, it's always activated. Simple things that are enjoyable for some people, like sensations, become, become violations, right? So smells, temperature, sounds, music, someone chewing food at the end of the table, it, it can become so sensitive in your system that things that like because just we said about not having abuse things that are innocuous and innocent and, and and just everyday events feel like threats to the system and i think that's the part that i'm, I'm so interested in with our conversation because we all work with trauma is when a boundary violation in the way linda and i just just added to that definition how it actually feels threatening to a person I'm curious what y'all think about that. What comes up for you around that idea? Alexis, go ahead. Well, this is actually not even necessarily related to trauma. Just, just to illustrate your point about, I think, when boundaries are needed, um, 
I don't work with younger teenagers, but I work with a lot of parents of younger teenagers who are come in completely perplexed by why their, you know, evolving young person is becoming so irritable and difficult. And I think one of the reasons is they're trying to establish boundaries, right? It gets to a point in development where the parent feels too intimate and too close and that parent still wants to have that closeness often. And so you've got that, you know, 14 year old who can't stand the sound of their parents chewing or, and all of those, like you said, things that are seemingly innocuous become, you know, manifest in this tremendous irritability. So we're not even talking about trauma yet. We're just talking about kind of ordinary development. That's how I tend to understand that sort of adolescence development, why it's so hard for parents to take that in. But really, that's about the really probably healthy establishment of a boundary with that young person as they evolve and need to develop that individuation and separation from their parents. So just even look at how that can be a healthy manifestation, albeit frustrating in the moment for the parent and the child. But it, if, if allowed to grow, right, or if that boundary is respected, trauma doesn't, right, there isn't trauma there, and the, and the person can evolve and develop into a really healthy relationship with that parent as time goes by. I'm really glad you said that, because the one thing we had talked about in our last discussion that I forgot about was about adolescence and childhood and, and toddlerhood and tantrums, and tantrums essentially being the same thing, like learning this sense of, I don't like to be touched that way, or I don't like the way my pants feel, and, and it's a actually really healthy expression that it's not a trauma expression when you have a child who's acting that way, but the trauma can come if you're repressing that. If you're teaching them through the way you're responding to them, they're not allowed to have that or you're forcing something onto them. Yeah, Danny. Yeah, and I think that um, brings up, I don't know if it's the kind of right moment now to go into it, but the, when I think boundaries, the first word that comes to mind as at least most important in my work with clients is anger. And it's like what you're talking about in terms of childhood and adolescence, it starts so early where that, you know, the cutting off of that intuitive, you know, that anger. I mean, it's kind of amazing to see. I love watching like a two-year-old get angry at an adult that's, you know, 10 times their size. And there's not a fear there. I mean, assuming of course that, it, you know, they're physically safe, but it's kind of amazing to watch actually. Like they get you know, they firm up and you can feel the energy, right? That like the, the anger flowing. And I think um, that the, to me, you know, the work around accessing anger is so important. I'm going to ask you a question now about that. What, what, how do you experience with yourself or your clients the, the, the most effective way? And this is a question for all of us to answer if you want, but starting with Danny, the most effective way to access the anger versus identifying with being an angry person yes yeah so that's a huge one i think first of all it's so um i, I oftentimes even kind of start off with a spiel a little bit like a little bit of a speech that it, it sounds similar every time i give it but differentiating first of all between private internal experiences thoughts and feelings versus behaviors and and kind of taking away any sense of right or wrong around thoughts and feelings as private internal experiences versus actions, which I do think of course should, you know, can be judged as like right or wrong or morally or ethically. Um, that starts to, I found that that really helps loosen things up a little bit as people start to uh, like feel like maybe it's allowed. And I will be, I have found that just, um, I try to get people out of kind of the, the analyzing mind, and I'll say things like, um, sometimes it'll be just, you know, what's the first thing that comes to your mind that you want to say to this person? And the moment we go past like five seconds, maybe even like three seconds, sometimes I can feel, oh, we've kind of, we're not accessing it. Um, but some that's that could be helpful and tying it to a sensation. And when you're saying, okay, that's I'm glad you just said that because you're saying accessing it. You mean identifying it in the mind and then also feeling in the sensation. So it's an embodied yes. experience. Yes. And sometimes it's happened primarily, I think, through words. When someone can identify or even just blurt out the words that they want to say. I've had experiences where someone's entire, you know, entire being has like shifted into a different state. And often they just they describe it as like feeling that energy is now flowing inside. Mm, that's really nice. Yeah. That's nice. 
I think what Danny said is that for us as somatic therapists is, is like always the end goal is for the energy to flow and be, become vitality again, not be stuck. So if anyone's listening to this thinking, well, what, what's the point of being embodied with my anger? That's the point. Uh, Linda, please. What are you thinking over there? Um, I'm thinking two different things. Um, in terms of the idea that anger for a toddler and for an early adolescent, which both Danny and Alexis were talking about, that that is um, a healthy expression of trying to negotiate a boundary. Um, I think that when we talk about that, we have to put gender in as a factor, because I think that that is often encouraged and supported for male children and less so for female. So, um, that's just an, an angle or something that we need to be conscious of. Um, and the second thing is when Danny, when you're talking about helping people access that anger, I think as somatic therapists, one of the things that, that we've become so aware of is that when the consequences of that anger have been detrimental to somebody, especially developmentally, um, that's where we get into that great push-pull and the, the um, not, not well-functioning nervous systems where there is so much work being done to protect the self from anger because the consequences of the anger in the past have been so dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad you said that. That's, that's where I imagine the fawn and freeze response to really start taking place. Yeah, absolutely. The fawn and the freeze and sometimes even the dorsal shutdown because uh, the anger has just been so dangerous in the past. Can you tell our listeners when you say dorsal shutdown what you're talking about? So when I say dorsal shutdown, we're talking about the polyvagal theory, which is, is one of the main things that, that, um, that uh, all of somatic experiencing is based on. And it's the idea basically that when the system gets into overload, when the charge, the feeling, the sensation, the fight and the flight gets to be too overwhelming and there's not a safe outlet for it. There's not the ability to fight or to flee. Um, or even if it ha is happening just emotionally internal and internally, when it gets to be overloaded and we don't have the ability to manage it, to find a way out, we can go into, basically it's as if somebody's slamming on the brake, everything shuts down. Um, it's when you start to feel numb, you can start to feel dissociated, you can start to feel exhausted, like you're just dragging your mind and your body through the thickest of mud and nothing can happen. I appreciate that because I want listeners to know, and it's a beautiful way to describe it, how that feels in their body, because this starts really early. You know, if we're in a household where our anger, like you're, we're all saying, and when I say anger as a child, I just mean a tantrum at first, like it's the really early stage, even like the screaming when you're a baby and you're wanting, you know, milk. I wouldn't call that anger necessarily, but there's this expression of survival energy. And so as a toddler, you're having a tantrum. It's these really early stages of boundaries and anger. And what I find with parents, I don't know about all of you, but the the when the parents are able to show the nervous system show the child's nervous system through their nervous system that they're safe and everything's okay and they're not being shamed, there's this incredible opportunity for a deeper bond with the parents. I know for my daughter and I that's true. So each tantrum is like that first early experience in parenting to like the rupture and repair we talk about to create that bond of you're safe, I see you, I can handle you, and I'm going to help you navigate this with words as you're able to be more intellectual. And, and by doing that, there's a safety where they just experience, oh, I can show when I have a boundary. And that child ideally becomes more embodied, right? But when we're talking, what Linda just said, when there's that shutdown happening, when the physical nervous system is shutting it down, dissociating from the charge because it's not being met, or even worse, it's being met with physical or verbal abuse, then you're developing a nervous system that's completely disembodied from anger, which means you're disembodied from boundary. And then you become an adult who's fawning and freezing everywhere letting everyone disrupt their boundaries and having no clue why they're so sick or tired or resentful secretly and all those kind of things. I'm just curious what comes up for all of you when I say that, if that takes you anywhere. Anything you want to add to that, please? Yeah, I'll do Laurie, then Linda. Uh, go ahead, Laurie. 
Great. Yes. Uh, one of the things that's coming to my mind right now as we're talking about um, children, children with, uh, you know, healthy, healthy developmental experiences, right? Tantrums, um, you have rupture and then repair. But, but even as kids experience, you know, they grow up in environments where they may not ha have had that safe opportunity to have a rupture or repair. Or there's other types of maybe traumas, developmental traumas um, that they've experienced. Um, I find quite often that so many clients, uh, when they come into the office and there's an explanation of what healthy aggression is and, an, and a curiosity and an invitation to experience healthy aggression um, in the healing relationship in the office that just naming, just using that term can be so incredibly validating as an invitation to explore what it might feel like in the body to be able to start working on how boundaries were ruptured in childhood. I'm really glad you said that because it went back to that question I asked Danny, the difference between identifying with the anger and honoring it. So when you say mm -hmm. healthy aggression, we're really talking about just like the way the body is thirsty for water. You know, it's like it's a mm -hmm. primitive input that we're supposed to have like a mosquito bites you, you hit it. You know, that's just like a micro level of healthy aggression of a protection versus mm -hmm. stigmatizing yourself as like an angry or bad person. It's not a right or wrong. It's a what is. The body has protective mechanism. So I love that for you, that term really helps the, your clients reframe that I'm hearing. Yes. And even just being able to feel so validated in their own internal experience can be enough to free, free up the ways in which uh, some of the trauma is stored physiologically. Mm. Some of the self messages, the meaning that's been created around feeling angry, mm -hmm. being angry, acting in angry ways can be enough to um, to allow some of that discharge to take place in a safe way in the therapeutic relationship um, to then just feel, you know, to see the way that that can sometimes generalize in people's lives, mm. in their own intimate relationships as adults, as, as some of that energy gets freed up. That's really beautiful. Um, right before I go to Linda, that just reminded me just to kind of say to everybody, you know, when you when we're talking about aggression and anger and such, we're talking about it as a response to boundary violations. So for some of you who don't have the embodiment of boundaries, that's a new concept for you to feel when you're being uh, permeated in a way it doesn't feel good emotionally, physically, even even saying yes to things you don't really mean yes to, that, that's one. Uh, just knowing if you have resentment or anger that's just sitting with you or building, that's the first symptom. That's the first symbol of the body to say something's being violated. Listen to the anger. Don't identify or react with it, listen to it. and. We learned so much. Linda, please. I just thought in terms of clarification, when we talk about boundaries having been ruptured because of trauma, whether it was an ongoing developmental trauma or um, a one-time shock trauma, when we talk about what that means to have ruptured boundaries and, and what it feels like, somatically, I think it's also just important to give it a little bit of a framework if boundaries are something, are a new idea for somebody. Um, because as, as adults, boundaries are how we decide what we keep out and how we decide what we let in. And when the boundaries have been ruptured, it, it, it can, the result can be sometimes not what you'd expect. Sometimes what it means is that we're not good at keeping things out. That's like when you were talking about, Luis, that we say yes to things that we want to say no to because we're not really good at keeping things out. Um, but sometimes we don't let enough in. Sometimes the result of a ruptured boundary is that the wall gets to be, the boundary gets to be too fortified, too protected. Um, and um, I'm not really sure how that's experienced somatically. I guess that would be a question for the group. We're really used to talking about boundary violations in terms of the inability to protect ourselves. But I'm wondering if anybody has had experience with people where, or with themselves, where it's the opposite, where we aren't able to let anything in. I, I first of all, love that you took it in that direction. Because whenever anyone talks about boundaries or reads about boundaries, they're always talking about like someone with a porous nervous system. But we don't talk about 
the what the other side of boundary ruptures look like. Now, for me, I'm I imagine it's much like the when we think of the fawner or the freezer, we're we're thinking of the more that porous person. But when I think of the fighter or the flighter, I'm thinking more of what you're talking about: someone that can't sit with intimacy, someone that overschedules themselves, someone who reacts on everybody. So the the ruptured boundaries are overcoupled and projected into the world, even at the grocery store. So I see that as a fighter and flighter, someone that's stuck in those two responses. Maybe that's how it shows up somatically. It's a great question. What do you all think? Anyone want to weigh on that? Weigh in on that? Consider it. Yeah, go for it, Alexis. Thank you. My, uh, I, I was just the clients that we see that are. Um, you know, may typically would have been sent to like anger management group, right? That have more of that kind of explosive anger. And what's tough about that patterning too, is that they often perpetuate um, a, an imbalance um, from the habit of responding. So I, I think of it as, you know, they're, they're, they have, they feel permeated just like the other category of person we're talking about, right? They feel just as intruded upon, they often are, um, but then because they might engage in that behavior of some kind of aggression, even if it's just verbally, um, the boundaries still stay really um, out of balance for them. And it also goes to, to point out that sometimes then the boundaries are sort of, it's almost like the boundary is so far that they feel abandoned, right? So now they've pushed the person so far away from them or the people so far away from them that there's there's a, a real isolation, um, which also I think can can really reinforce an experience of trauma. Oh my goodness. I mean, when, when you said that, it was so clear, like how that's such a reenactment, you know, as an adult, if, you're, if your boundaries are so far out that no one can get close to you, you're reenacting maybe early abandonment um, because you're creating it un, un, unbeknownst to yourself. That's really important. Anyone else want to wait? Danny, please. Just an interesting personal experience that, you know, that came up as Alexis was talking about when we were doing the exercise at first, you know, so the hands against the chest, actually, I felt angry. I felt angry at you, Luis, because I was, you know, I felt like I don't want this. But then as my arms went out, it felt too loose. It felt like too much space almost. And it started to feel also uncomfortable, but in a different way, like a floaty kind of discomfort. So it's a really interesting, you know, subjective experience of that sense of when, if the boundary's too far out, you know, then no, you know, then you're like, you know, like Alex said, kind of alone. Interesting. Glad you said that. That's so yeah, it's so beautiful because I'm go to Laurie next and then Linda. It's so beautiful because um I find with with when I do workshops and I do that little I do that little intro for a lot of people because it's so simple, but it's like Alexis said, you don't realize how much is there. It's like two minutes and just so much information. But I find when someone's really angry when it's close to them and then it goes out and they feel uncomfortable or dissociative, I just I just love learning from each person what that means for them. For me so far, I learned with a lot of people that means when, they're, when their arms are really far out, there's a, there's a real disembodiment with creating big boundaries as well. It's not all, it, there's the part you said about losing yourself, like Linda was saying, which I totally agree with. And then there's people that are like, oh, but I don't want to take up that much space. I get a lot of those too, and that interests me. It's a really, really good reflection. Go ahead, Laurie. I did also, I, I appreciated that exercise so much, Luis, that you opened up with. And um, I was also aware of, of myself in thinking about how this exercise feels to me now at the, in the time of COVID versus how this exercise might have felt a year ago. And, um, and I think for myself, and I'm speaking for what some of my clients have described when I've done a similar exercise with them, is that it's really very different. And it's very different every day, depending on what has popped up in the news, what's going on in our, our environments, or maybe specifically in our families under our own roofs, right? That um, how, how I'm feeling into boundaries and, and the porous nature of the boundaries that I want to have versus the more fixed boundaries that I want to have is, is just so variable. And, um, and, and I appreciate this discussion because it's reminding me again of just the necessity of, of being so aware of how we feel activation individually in the body, how our nervous systems are responding to this, you know, this pervasive threat of COVID. Um, and 
the variability, I think that's the word that's standing out in my mind the most, the variability of, of day-to-day um, experience of what boundary is comfortable for me right now in this moment. Whereas yesterday it might have been, I really, really need people. I want people around me and that's gonna help me settle on the inside and feel safe and comfortable. And, and then the next day, depending on maybe how long my work day was, or maybe whether or not the sun was shining and I had access to nature, um, maybe, maybe it would be a different, a different felt sense of a boundary on, on that day with, with the world, you know, and, and what, how fixed I personally want or need the boundary to be so that I can take care of my own mental health. It's, uh, it's, it's with COVID I'm finding it's, it's very different. This discussion of boundaries with clients. Mm-hmm. I, I love everything you said, um, I would love us at one point to expand on COVID because I think it's really important. Uh, the part that interested me, that inspired me, that I wanted to share with everybody, when you, when you do this somatic therapy or you become more embodied, what's so great about that is it's not, it's not actually used the word fixed a lot. I understood your context of it, but it's not as fixed as if you're not doing it somatically. Because you might say, you might go into a therapy office or talk to a friend and say, you know, uh, my mom really bothers me, let's say. And well, just tell her you never want to see her again. And it's these kind of like huge overarching boundaries that never get updated. But when you're doing this embodiment, like you said, it changes. It changes from day to day. Someone you don't even want to hear their voice, four hours you may want to hug that person. So I think it's really exciting when you learn the embodiment piece based on, like you said, activation. Where am I right now versus where am I supposed to be? Where am I not supposed to be? What will they like? What won't they like? It's not about that. It's about where am I right now? What, what, what can I offer? What can I keep out? What can I bring in? Go ahead, Linda. Since we're talking about the idea of embodiment and a, the felt sense of a boundary, which is what you had us play with a little bit in the exercise, it reminds me of one of the exercises we learned in our SE training that I think is one of the best ways to start to sense the embodiment in relationship to a boundary that there's no reason people can't do by themselves at home if they want to sort of play with this concept, which is to take a rope and to, to, with the rope, make a physical boundary around yourself that feels comfortable. And it's a really interesting exercise because Initially, you won't know, but as you play with the rope and make it a smaller circle, a bigger circle, a medium circle, and noticing what feels comfortable. And that's what we are talking about when we talk about the embodiment of a boundary. How do you know what space feels right for you? Um, And of course, it's not always so simple. I've worked with clients where they cannot find the right space. Um, but that's okay too. That's giving you information too. You start to sense the different ways that different things don't feel right. I really appreciate that. I, I, I love that. And it just, it just um, further enforces that feeling I had after what Laurie said, just about how when you practice this enough, the rope exercise, my opening exercise, somatic therapy itself, embodiment of boundaries and embodiment of self you really get this trust with yourself, don't you? I think that's the part that that so many people who have, I know before I did this work, I didn't have it as much as I do now, don't have that trust of like, what do I really want? They don't trust their boundary. They don't, they don't feel confident even expressing their needs, whether it's like you said, letting in or keeping out. And I think when you really get to learn that activation, you start to learn like what's really here versus what's my mind saying should or shouldn't be here. And that's what I love about psychotherapy being married to somatic therapy is this, this perfect marriage of, of learning your mind and your body. It's just incredible. Alexis, please. Um, it, it makes me think also just to talk for a moment about like what we do, right? That we're, and today I think we've been kind of flowing from one to the other, but one thing we do when we're working with patients is we talk, um, we, we explain, we kind of educate. And so it might be talking about, um, yeah, so when you experience anger, there's actually a good reason for anger. Um, for, for me, I might explain like the, the sort of biological evolution of anger and why we experience it and how it's protective and especially with regard to boundaries, right? So there's a talking about things, giving people a narrative or, or enough um, content of, of concept to, 
to feel validated in their experience. But then it's really important part of actually sensing into it. Um, like with the like with the exercise Linda just mentioned, or what you were just referring to, Louise, um, that there's um, there's a way of actually sensing in. I love doing um, the visual orienting, which I think of as another way of, in some ways, establishing a sense of boundary. Where you, I do it myself sometimes. Simply having a client just look around. Um, so especially when somebody's feeling, you know, starting to go into more of a threat response, taking a moment to just literally look around them. Maybe even if if they're the olden days when they'd be in my office, uh, you know, look around the side of the couch, look in the corner where they can't see things and recognizing that there's parts of their system um, that might be um, experiencing sort of a, a response um, that's informing their overall experience that has to do with them not feeling fully protected. So looking to see that there's not actually something behind the couch helps them to have a better sense of boundary that they're safe sitting there on the couch. Of course, logically, they knew there was nothing behind the couch, but their whole body, their whole system doesn't know that. And so the point I'm making is just, you don't know that that's a problem until you go to experience it. So for ourselves and then for our clients, giving the explanations, giving the education about how things are, but then actually and this is what I really love about somatic experiencing, really focusing a lot of our, our time on just the actual experiencing, what is going on, look around and notice how you feel, lay the rope around you and notice how you feel and, and really paying attention to that. And then um, with that self-trust that you were talking about, Louise, that there's a, a, a sense of realizing there's so much resource in my body and in my experiencing as I pay attention to it, there's so much here. Wow, I didn't know there was so much information that I had to even just, just to give myself but it, it's just a matter of taking the time to pay attention to it. I'm really happy you said that, um, the, the, you know, because reorienting yourself and, and what Alexis is talking about is like literally bringing yourself to the present moment and looking around. Because when you're in a story or you you've woke up and you were with your kids and you went to the grocery store and you drove, your body has cataloged so many experiences within the first couple hours of being awake already that your mind isn't even aware of. So by the time you're sitting down, your mind is thinking of the past or future, or your body's even thinking of past or future. But when you're able to reorient your surroundings, you can say, okay, and you can try it right now, actually, if you're listening, you can look around. And one, one of the best ways I like is looking over the shoulder, because then you get into the psoas, that twist. And so when you look over your shoulder, you know, behind you, even if we do it now, you feel like I immediately feel this release in my lower back. Because like you said, Alexis, the mind knows I'm safe, okay? The body doesn't. And conversely, the body might think I'm not safe, right? And the mind might think I am. So it's about bringing them together. Um, and as you're talking, I, my mind, I'm going to go to Danny. You, I saw your hand was up. Um, I don't know if any, anyone can weigh on this later after Danny gives his, his input on what was being said. I was just thinking so much about um, prejudice and boundary violations, uh, especially because right now we're in a, a really hard time with racism becoming more known for people who didn't know it was happening in this country. And I know a lot of people of color who I work with, they feel boundary violations when they see themselves being mocked on the television, or if they see, you know, um, uh, the news covering the, um, the most recent shooting, or they even hear a police car go by. So that, that kind of ties in earlier to what we were saying around um, perceived threats that threat really happened to somebody else, but that person's body is going to perceive it could happen to them. Same true with the LBGTQI community. There's so many uh, minority communities, women perhaps, right, in the workplace, uh, maybe in the world even, just feeling what it feels like to perceive the threat when you see people who you identify with being mistreated. That, I'm curious about your inputs, just to sit with that for a moment around uh, how that gets translated as a boundary violation as well and how that's so hard because it isn't actually happening in front of you in that moment but you're you're carrying the lineage that it did and that's also intergenerational trauma it comes into so it's a lot of just throughout but just to kind of sit with it and i just want to give those those people's voices some voice the, to the discussion um danny do you want to weigh in on that or something else from earlier i'm muting you yeah, uh, something else from earlier. Um, Please. But I just wanted to add, I'm glad Linda mentioned that exercise, um, you know, with the rope. And I, I wanted to just add, if that ever feels inaccessible to people, 
that there can be some work around, is there a part of yourself that you feel would benefit from doing that work with? Like imagining a part or maybe an age or something like that. Um, because I think sometimes this, like the voices that we've internalized, and this can actually speak certainly to, to oppression of various kinds, are so, they're so internalized and so kind of rigidly stuck in us that sometimes I found even doing, um, like let's say putting a rope around your whole body sometimes feels, uh, um, you know, like inaccessible. Um, or it, it, the part is so internalized that it feels like it's included with you in the rope and you can't get it out. And so sometimes it could be helpful to do kind of more of that like almost like parts work um, and maybe imagine doing the boundaries um, with like the different parts, like the part that's, uh, you know, maybe telling you, um, judging you for how you look, you know, whatever, violating your boundaries in all sorts of ways. And then the part of you that's on the receiving end. Thank you for that. Yeah. Lori, go ahead. Yeah, I, I appreciate the, um, you know, the, the introduction to talking together about this idea of um, racial trauma, particularly at this time. And one of the things I appreciate so much about what somatic experiencing can offer in this discussion is, is you know, the, the naming and the framing of this as chronic microaggressions. You know, if we think about daily boundary violations, boundary ruptures and threat that may not, we may not be as people, as clinicians, as, as human beings so aware in particular minority groups and ethnic groups, what others are experiencing as boundary violations. And so one of the ways that I think somatic experiencing can be um, just a really unique psychotherapy in this way is to invite folks to go inward and explore how they, um, how they feel, how they, how they experience these microaggressions, right? And as an invitation, and it may be an invitation in their daily lives, maybe in the workplace, uh, but even, even in some of these concepts that I think have been introduced of uh, multi-generational transmission of trauma um, and how we may carry unresolved trauma somatically in our bodies in ways that have a lot to do with our, you know, identification as it, with our culture, our families of origin, um, racial and ethnic and minority groups. Um, so I think SE does that beautifully as, as an invitation to explore that in ways that I think other psychotherapies, um, it just is a very unique way of introducing that. I really appreciate that and I agree. Linda, I think you had your hand up. So you raised a really big topic there, please, <laughs> uh, about um, vicarious trauma and intergenerational trauma and racial trauma and other forms of um, discrimination. Um, but I think the piece of it that has struck me in recent weeks and months in my work is with some of my clients who are not members of a minority and who are actively now, as so many people in the country are, trying to become anti-racist and trying to examine their own racism. And one of the things that I've seen with multiple people is as they become more embodied, they've discovered that when they are in the presence of a racial minority, their conscious thought is everything's fine. I don't have any kind of prejudice. I don't have any kind of fear, but their embodied experience is very different than that. Their embodied experience is carrying fear. And, um, and it's been shocking to them to discover that. It's been shocking to them to discover that and um, to be supportive of that process as a therapist, to not judge them for it, to respect the fact that they're open to it and that it's something that, that they can work with. Um, so I think the somatic work has been particularly helpful 
for me in addressing those kinds of issues. So I don't know that that's really on the topic of boundaries anymore, but it is about embodiment. I mean, I think it, I, I love that. I really appreciate that because I think it, it um, in a way it is, right? Because really boundary, boundary, in my opinion, really just is about embodiment. It's about how do I feel? What's coming in? What am I putting out? And so if, if you know, we work, you know, we're all white or white passing here. So we predominantly, I'm assuming, work with white or white passing people. It probably feels safer. I should say people of color feel safer with people of color. At least my clients say they have who are, who are black. And so I think when you say as therapists who are doing the somatic work, kind of like what Lori was saying, like invitation for microaggression is the same thing. You're talking about an invitation for a microaggressor something that they're doing somatically or unconsciously, they don't even know they're doing. And specifically speaking about white or white passing people who may be unconsciously acting in a way that's racist. And I talked about this a bit with Dave Berger. I talked about it a lot in episode four and five, I think, with April Harder, who's a racism recovery expert and psychotherapist. And she said exactly what you said. There's so, and Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, he says all the same things that, that you're saying is intergenerational trauma passed down through white Europeans. There's such a fear response to black skin. It's like that somatic and unconscious just from even growing up in America, watching the news, you know, you could have black, you could be white and have black friends or have a family who's, you know, completely, uh, as far as they know, not, not racist and open. But if they're watching the news every day and seeing a man's face with dark skin that says criminal, that's going into the nervous system. So one of the best ways I've seen to our work, how we can help heal racism in ourselves and in our clients is what you just said, not attach the stigma or judgment to what the body's doing separate from the mind. Because the body isn't our identity. The body is this vessel we get to experience this life in but it, it becomes identity when we don't realize that there are two different things happening so like you said there can be this conscious person who i've worked with people married to black people who don't even know they're doing it so it can be a really conscious person but in this in the body this whole other thing's happening so to invite them to go into that and feel that i think it's beautiful beautiful important work it has to happen uh, go ahead laurie I just wanted to reflect um, on something that you and Dave Berger, um, I appreciate you referencing that previous podcast because I thought it was very lovely, this piece where the two of you were speaking about um, racial trauma and how we, um, as a white culture, how what, what we end up doing is not being so consciously aware of a fear response, right? That there may be a, a, an implicit felt sense of fear, but unless we are, curious about what's happening in our bodies and we name it and we actually invite moving over that the pendulum and the right the pendulation cycle we move out of that state of fear we're able to engage in more rational thought right what do i want to do in this moment that i'm responding to perhaps this implicit activation going on in my body that maybe is passed down generationally it's it's living in us but I, I notice it, I let it go. And all of this could happen in a split second, but it's when we engage, whether it's police officers, ourselves, wherever, in a grocery store, driving, in whatever context it might be, it's when we can make those, those, those kinder, more appropriate, rational choices that we all want to make in that moment, right? I'm really glad you said that. And even you saying that reminds me of what Linda said, maybe we're not talking about boundaries anymore, but we actually are. We're talking about what Linda said earlier about having too big of boundaries that are unnecessary, right? So like a fear response from learned white culture onto people of color or other people straight against gay. I mean, whatever the other, whoever the other is in the moment, that that's a fear response. It's too big of a boundary. It's too big of an aggression. It's a fight response we're talking about. And every night I go to sleep and my dream is that every police officer in the country will do SE <laughs> so they can feel in their body. Wow, what's making me reach for the taser? What's making me reach? What, what's the neighbor? What's making me reach for the phone to call this person? Imagine if we could feel into those little, little tiny moments before, like Danny was saying, we have this 
internal state that's essentially lawless and innocent. And then the actions are what we're trying to work with. So if you can sit with those internal states without judging them, what's grabbing the phone? Oh, my racism is grabbing the phone. Let me sit with that for a couple of minutes. I mean, imagine I get chills just thinking about how we could slowly person to person heal communities of many, of many things. I, I, so I think it's, it's extremely important and very boundary focused actually. Um, Dan, you had your hand up and then we're going to start closing after that. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll speak to more of around gender and sexuality here than uh, race because it's because I work with, um, you know, like you said, primarily white folks. Um, but one striking thing around boundaries um, and something that's come up in my office is uh, like how, like being able to even move your body the way you want to move your body. I've been really struck by how, um, how profound that is, that the sense that you're, you're living in a world in which you, you know, even in the privacy of the office with your psychotherapist, or maybe when, even when you're alone, it feels, you know, there's managing a threat of even moving your hands in a certain way when you speak, or, you know, I had one situation in my office around crossing your legs, you know, and it's, um, that, that's just incredible that the, the amount of energy the system has to constantly exert to manage that constant threat and level of constriction that, 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 that's needed um, to, to maintain that. I love that. I love that you say that. And I, I do this thing now when I talk to people where I notice, am I crossing my arms as I'm like having a conversation? This is almost, almost with men only. It never happens with women. But when I'm talking to another man, I notice, why are we both crossing our arms? So interesting. Like we're literally protecting our heart from each other. So such learned behavior. Uh, go ahead, Linda. So to talk about moving your body, and to sort of end, at least my part, on a lighter note, you were saying that that happened mostly with men. If you're a woman, even in the privacy of your own home, try not to hold your stomach in. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. We have so much learned that that's a boundary that we have to constantly making as physically small as possible. I appreciate that. I don't know if that was a lighter note, but I appreciate that. Um, because <laughs> it was a good note, though, and an important note. And this, this, this podcast is so not light. People write to me all the time saying, I'm so glad you go deep. So you are all doing so great today with your incredible depth and wisdom. And um, when you were saying that, I was just in my, my mind, I just heard the phrase like, oh, this is the great undoing. You know, like, like SE is this great invitation to undo learned inauthentic behavior. And it, it almost becomes very metaphysical. You know, it's it, sometimes when I'm explaining to clients in a way that I think is scientific, I hear myself and I'm like, I sound like a magician. Like the things that I'm saying to them about their bodies and what to expect, because it, it really brings in the question of, okay, if I, the big I, am the conscious self witnessing the body, and the body's not I, where is I? And a whole other, you know, that's a whole other discussion, of course. But that's what SE really lets us do. It, se- it helps us separate the body's reactions enough to actually connect to it in this deeper way that's much more kinder. I think that's what Laurie was saying, much more kinder in how we respond. Yeah, please, Alexis. You're muted again. There <laughs> I you keep go. doing there that. Um, and, and also, this is a, a just sort of a broader comment because I know we're going to start to close. Um, I think that for me, my personal experience of doing somatic experiencing, and then as I do it with clients, I notice that there's a lot of the learning that I have a container for all this experience. So whether it's to go back to the idea mm-hmm. of as a white person myself or working with my many white clients, learning that as they learn about their own racism, that they have a container, they can contain that, they can stay with it. I mean, uh, Robin D'Angelo's book about white fragility really taught me a lot about that, right? So I have a container to carry around with me every day, knowing that that's something that's going to stay with me, but within that container, I can improve it, get to know it, and therefore be able to improve it. But I think that really relates to to boundaries in general. When I have a container, um, when I have a sense of myself as being able to contain some of my suffering and to expansively sort of distribute it throughout my body, um, I feel intrinsically more boundaried. 
I feel better able to, I'm holding myself when I feel like I have a container and therefore I feel, uh, I don't know how to, I, I want like a better metaphor, but I feel like there's a boundary around me that makes me feel safe and able to move forward in life um, with all of my suffering and burdens. I don't think there's a better way to say that. I think um, when you're saying that I'm hearing, you know, when we're in trauma response or we're in a dorsal shutdown, we aren't accessing our whole bodies and we literally might be accessing our chest and that's it because it's all just pulling there. And we've all experienced with our clients and in our training together and in ourselves when you're in that kind of activation and all the charge is going to one body part and then we either dissociate or that's the only body part we have, but we're disembodied. We don't even feel our bodies. So when you're saying about, and that's what I love about SE, it's really about expanding the charge so it fills up the body because the body is the container. And if you think about our bodies compared to the nerves and the charge, it's a big container. And then the movement discharges the charge. So there's even more space in you. So that kind of end goal is to walk through life with more space and like head to toe embodiment, feeling the whole self. So then when the shoulder goes up, we're like, oh, something's happening. And I always tell people it's not neurotic because neurotic's more like you're looking for a problem. It's more receptive, like you're really aware and open and waiting for it to speak to you. And then you've created this container and this practice of trusting yourself. So when it speaks to you, you, you start learning how to move with it. So I, I really appreciate that. Does anybody have any closing words? I was, I mean, Alexis, I thought it was great closing. Does anyone have anything they want to add before we close? No? Danny, I'm going to unmute everybody and let Danny speak just so we can all be here as we close. Go ahead, Danny. Just that I think it's always important to remember that, you know, we, that a lot of times we need other people to help us like know our boundaries and set our boundaries and validate our boundaries. Um, and even from, you know, polyvagal perspective that that makes sense that we need, like sometimes it's like even just one person um, but for folks trying to do this work alone or feeling like they have to do it alone, that, um, yeah, that sometimes we really need other people to help us find those boundaries. Maybe our next discussion will be about co-regulation and the importance of that and developing that. Cause I think it's so important. I really appreciate that. Thank you all for joining me. Everyone's going to love you after they hear this. I have such brilliant colleagues. I'm so lucky. And, Thank um, you for having us. Yeah, Thank you, Luis. This is fun. Yeah, this is really Such fun. an interesting discussion. To learn more about the therapists that I had on the show today, you can look in the episode details for their information, their websites, their names. To learn more about this work, you can go to traumahealing.org and click on Find a Practitioner. And you can find someone in any state or any country even who specializes in somatic therapy for trauma. And they might be psychotherapists, they might be coaches, they might be spiritual intuitives. There's many different people who started some other form of healing and then found their way into somatic therapy. And you can find that through the website as well. If you want to do this work with me, once a month, I have a monthly healing circle, which is a sliding scale of 10 to $30 per person. You choose how much you can pay. And it's a Zoom conference. There's you know, usually somewhere between 30 and 50 people. And we're all learning this work together in a group setting. I'm teaching it and leading it. And you can share or you can not. You can turn your camera on or camera off if you want to be private. It's totally up to you. But it's a beautiful way every month to dip in and do this work uh, in a group setting if you can't afford a therapist. I hope you found this episode helpful. I know I did. And I'll see you on the next one. If you're finding yourself more interested in integrating the work that I do into your life, consider joining my four-week online course. It begins on Sunday, October 18th, and we meet twice a week for four weeks. Our bodies speak in sensations. When we learn how to listen and respond to these sensations, we begin creating a dialogue with our bodies, a way to hear them. And through that witnessing, we release stress and trauma. My course will teach you how nutrition and embodiment are key practices to living a happy life. You will learn many different techniques and philosophies which you can incorporate into your own daily practice. We meet every Sunday for a 90-minute lecture and exercise, and every Wednesday for a 30-minute check-in 
where I will answer any questions you might have so that we can deepen your understanding of this work. If you're unable to attend live, you'll get a recording emailed to you. To register and pay for the course, please visit my website, www.holisticlifenavigation.com. So as always, before you go, take a breath. Feel your body. Notice your emotions. And take that awareness into your life. I want to thank you for sharing this space with me. For more information on my work or any events that I might be hosting, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. And you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at Holistic Life Navigation. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.